Retrograde Approach, Episode 13, Reflection on the Vascular Surgical Fellowship Examination 2021 and on Vascular Surgical Training with Dr. Calpa Pereira. In this week's episode of the Retrograde Approach podcast, we are fortunate enough to be joined by Dr. Kalpa Pereira, final year vascular surgical trainee at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. Um, Dr. Pereira has recently sat his fellowship exam, and uh, we are very proud to announce that he is one of the many successful candidates that have come through the examination itself. So Kalpa, welcome to the podcast. It's very nice to have you here. And uh, we're very privileged to have you uh, in this discussion tonight. Thanks, Yogi. G'day, guys. Uh, it's very nice and kind of you guys to have me here. Can we call you a uh, fellow yet, Kalper, or you haven't quite earned that title? Uh, some people do, some people don't. I got asked that question the other day, actually. Are you a fellow registrar where they were writing it on the board? And I said, oh, look, maybe halfway. <laughs> 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 exactly. <laughs> well, Kalpa, you're in a you're in a very unique position, having come through the fellowship exam and surviving it, to sort of reflect on your experience. Um, Sam and I, having gone through it not too long ago, can relate very strongly to the elation you feel at the moment. But um, really, from from this perspective, um, we were very very interested to find out whether you you know, whether things have changed. I guess to start our conversation off tonight, I wanted to put to you um, the sort of pertinent question about vascular examination preparation courses. So we're very fortunate in our training program uh, and in our specialty that there are two um, exam preparation courses. There's uh, the Western Australian Vascular Education course, otherwise known as WAVE, and there's also the Australian Vascular Trials. Now, um, in 2021, unfortunately, neither of these courses were able to proceed in the context of COVID outbreaks. Did you find preparing without them was a major hurdle to sitting the exam? And also within your own study group, did you have any solutions to try and overcome this? Uh, we are fortunate to have those two courses and kind of leading up to getting into study more so last year, we were looking forward to those courses, mainly for kind of an outline um, in the structure of the exam, um, specifically, probably more so for the uh, the viva component, um, in what they were the examiners were kind of expecting uh, from the candidate. Um, and initially, when we were preparing, the courses were going ahead, and like, we paid the money, and everything was organised. And it was kind of last minute that they're all were cancelled. Fortunately, uh, we had some wise advice early on in the year uh, by someone who said. Uh, prepare as if the courses were not going to go ahead. I wonder who that was, Kalpa. <laughs> yeah, that was you, Sam. <laughs> and uh, that did come to fruition. Um, I felt more so for the Viva, I think not having the courses kind of affected my study for that because I, I wasn't sure what to expect as such. Um, I was fortunate enough to have um, a few uh, surgeons at my hospital uh, who kind of helped me prepare and helped me kind of 
to show what the examiners are expecting. Um, the other thing, we were somewhat fortunate in that there was almost two months between the, the written and the vivas uh, in our exam. So it was easier kind of to focus on the written uh, for the first part and then kind of think more about the vivas, whereas traditionally I think there's only about six weeks in between. Um, so the study structure would have been geared to both as opposed to just kind of one or the other. Um, I think going forward, I'm not sure if the courses will continue to go ahead or not. You know, I think people should, I suppose, uh, prepare as if the courses won't go ahead in future, especially for the next year, I suppose. Um, in terms of our study group, uh, we managed to organise uh, a few consultants around town to, to take us for sessions, uh, especially for the visors, um, which helped. And they'd kind of gone through the exam somewhat recently and were able to act as pseudo uh, examiners, um, which was good. Um, but I think, yeah, so just kind of harking back on that, I think more so for the vivas than anything, the courses would have been useful, but we kind of had to make do without them. Uh, one, one thing that people often talk about with the examination courses is the environment in which you sit it. So sort of mimicking the sort of exam stress that you need to, you know, you're trying to practice or prepare for. And I guess the reflection on perhaps more the vivas than the written exam is probably where that's more important. Um, was, is there a way or what was your study group's way of trying to mimic that and try and putting yourself under pressure to sort of look at your response and particularly your stress response in regards to that? Because I feel, and Sam, I don't know whether you agree or not, I think half the battle with the fellowship exam is not really the content. I think everyone's well prepared. Uh, it's often the emotional, the psychosocial aspect of the stress related to the exam itself. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, stress, the stress of the exam, I must say, you know, it's nothing like I've experienced before. It is definitely the most stressful experience that I've had. Um, and yes, having those courses um, kind of may have simulated that stress somewhat. I don't think as much as we try to kind of grill each other and, and you know, consultants grilling us it can never really measure up to to what the exam is but also to what i suspect that these courses um can provide so i think it is tough to to kind of even approach that simulation i think what we did was just kind of grill each other as much as we could but but there is a big step up so i think mentally preparing for that on the day of the exam um, is something that i i think i kind of underestimated um I mean, different people have different kind of ways of doing that. Um, and I suppose something you can do is, you know, get your unit to kind of on a regular basis to uh, simulate that kind of stress. But, but it is, yeah, it is a good point. It is difficult to emulate. So you didn't have Sam Farris standing behind you, um, bringing on a cold sweat whenever he was asking you a question, Kalpa? No, Sam Farrell wasn't allowed to ask me any questions. <laughs> this is <laughs> his old, normal day in clinic, Yogi. It's, it's, just, <laughs> it's just in a cold sweat all the time whenever he sees it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the impression I get of Sam Farrell, the tibial hunter. He's constantly all about pressure, pressure, pressure. Um, but uh, look, I think I, I completely agree with you, Kalpa. I think I also... Um, on the day of the exam, found it quite uh, intense. 
And I think part of the reason I found it quite involved was the fact that uh, to maintain, I guess, the um, to try and avoid any favoritism, you're really addressed as a numerical value, your candidate 342, which was what my number was, as opposed to the person. And you sit, you get dehumanized in that process, which is a bit confronting. Um, but uh, I think, as you said, Kalpa, you've got to try and keep your wits about you. And there's no way, no one can ever make you feel like you're going to be quite right until the day of the exam when you just go in and do the best you can. I think with exam, I suppose most people in our position to this point would have gone through exams kind of feeling pretty good um, and feeling like they've done well, whereas this exam is quite unsettling. And I mean, I was... So I was very stressed and I'm, I don't, I'm not a very stressful person normally. Um, and towards the end, I was, you know, almost convinced that I'd failed. Yeah. Um, which is just, I suppose, the nature of the exam and how uncomfortable it makes you. Yeah. The complete opposite of Sam Farrah, the Tibial Hunter, who came out of his exam feeling like he was the greatest thing that's ever <laughs> no, been. No, I did not feel good after the exam. No one feels good after the exam. And that's a reason, that's a good point because you know, unfortunately, sometimes people don't get through this exam and it may actually be the first exam they've ever failed and that's a, a fairly bitter pill to swallow. So um, this exam makes you feel like no other exam, I think, um, is a take-home message that, um, yeah. And you could see, I could see it in uh, your face, Kalper, um, leading, <laughs> leading you to the rooms that this was an unusually unsettled Dr. Pereira, but unfortunately that's part of the process. Yeah, and there's probably yeah. nothing. There's nothing more unsettling than the waiting time or the uh, sort of isolation time you've got in the lead up to and then subsequently, um, as you as your colleagues go through it, um, your mind takes you to weird and wonderful places in terms of what the examiners might be thinking. But you've got to trust yourself. And um, this is this is the point where I always remind myself what Tim Wagner told us as junior set trainees and Calpo, you might have been there. When he, when he mentioned this, which is that if you believe in the training program, then all the, all the candidates that go through will pass. Uh, the, the question is when, and it's a belief, the fact that we get trained sufficiently well to succeed in, in this exam. I suppose the other thing is in the exam, it is an artificial setting, but you know, you've been trained very well to this point. And the way to answer, I suppose, is you know, do what you would do in real life and not think of it as an, as an exam scenario. Because I kind of fell into that trap a fair bit when I was practicing in that, oh, this is the exam answer. Whereas going on with the study, I developed, you know, this is the actual answer, not just the exam answer. I think it's important to, to maintain that mentality throughout the exam and what is the right, you know, what you would do in real life. Definitely. And you, and, you know, the other piece of advice that Sam and I both got in the lead up to our exam was, You've got to think about the exam as what you would do as a first year consultant because the examiners want to know that you're safe that is ultimately the goal of this whole exam that you are going to do what your colleagues around you believe to be safe and being able to communicate those ideas clearly and succinctly in a way that brings that confidence to the examiners is important so i suppose Kalpa, you know the station in which you know the question of what would i actually do as a first year consultant with this 
um, would most likely come up in the CDMs. And I think I I found that, and you know, yeah, I think maybe you found this the most difficult to prepare for as well because they can ask you anything really and you can't really prepare for every scenario. So just take us through how you found the clinical decision-making station, how you dealt with the questions you were asked, because I think this year they're actually relatively difficult. I think um, the CDMs, you're right, you, you know, there's essentially an unlimited amount of scenarios and you can't prepare for all of them. I think of all the Viva stations, that was probably one of the most comfortable for me purely because at a couple of the stations, uh, sorry, one question we'd actually discussed in our study group the week before, and I had a, quite a good plan for it. Um, but the other two, um, I think once you put yourself in, in kind of your own shoes, what you, you know, in the clinical setting, I think things just start to flow um, and you can answer a question as if you were there and as if you was in your hospital and, and you were you know, doing it uh, as you would every day. And I found that to be the best way to approach, approach this. Because um, as we said earlier, we've all you know, been in a number of situations and we've been through the program for you know, almost five years to that point. Um, so I think there's a lot that we see and, and most things, and you know, it's, it's unusual for them to ask something completely um, rare uh, in the clinical decision making, especially, um, so I think the way I dealt with it was just to kind of put myself in that moment and, and answer as I would uh, every day. Yeah, yeah. So one was the carotid cabbage question, which I think is probably the familiar, yep. well, the one you're referring to that you'd prepared yeah. for before, and then the other two. There was one um, the registrar had ligated the common femoral vein. Is that the... no? That was the in the operative viva. So the other two in the clinical decision making was um, there was a femfem crossover that you'd done, uh, and you just had to talk about your follow up protocol. Uh, the patient subsequently presents with a seroma. What would you do? And then the seroma subsequently gets infected, uh, and then the management of that, which is all pretty reasonable. Um, and the first question was uh, quite an unwell patient uh, in intensive care who had an end-stage malignancy uh, who the intensive care doctors call you because they've placed a vascath, a femoral vascath in the femoral artery as opposed to the vein um, and then talk through your kind of approach on the phone and then when you see the patient, what would you do? And this was quite a, quite a frail patient uh, with a poor prognosis from their malignancy um, so my approach is to manage this conservatively um, but talking through each of the avenues and, and the complexity of the patient so this is not a that's i would say not a <laughs> infrequent it's not a phone call that you would be surprised about getting i would say it's not a yeah i mean it's not something that's that's completely foreign to any of us right no so i think the key was not to jump into anything and to just kind of Think about the patient yeah i think so there's i was i have two analogies when it comes to the cdm one is cdm's like your pick your own adventure storybook when you're a child you know whatever page you turn the story continues and you just you're constantly getting peppered uh, and so being prepared for that with the cdms is one of the challenges and i think the other bit of advice that i got uh, with the cdms 
uh, was it's like a it's like a tennis rally. You've got to gently nurse the ball back across the net without trying to trying to score the free point uh, because that's when they'll come down and sort of try and uh, push you into a corner. It's it's a difficult. Uh, I I personally found it difficult because you do need to put yourself out there to progress in the question. If you if you're too defensive, it becomes a little bit stagnant, and then the examiners don't get what they want out of you. Um, and uh, I've, I've heard both sides of the coin in the sense that some people find it the most enjoyable part of the exam because it really allows them to grow and show their strength as a, as a new consultant. Um, it's also potentially a little bit frightening, especially as you're trying to play uh, the safe, as safe as you can be without trying to put yourself out there or commit, like you said, to something too early. Um, and, and I think Sam's right. It's probably the best reflection of where you are going to be literally in the next couple of months ahead as you now transition from your time as a trainee, hopefully into a consultant role coming forward. Um, so I guess the, the where we could lead on from here, Kalpa, would be to ask you about whether what overall, when you look back over the whole structure of the exam, were there any changes that you were aware of compared to our sitting just over six months ago? Were there anything that you thought um, was done a bit differently compared to what you had heard? Um, and and I, I guess I go back to the point of, especially with anatomy in the fellowship exam, it's definitely changed over the last 12 months and your sort of reflection on that. Uh, look, the, the overall structure compared to your exam was much the same. Um, the flavor of the questions somewhat were slightly different uh, in that, especially I noticed during the operative viva, a few questions were had a bit of a clinical decision-making flavor to them, um, such as that question where the registrars ligate to the common femoral vein um, and your approach. Uh, it wasn't purely an operative uh, station uh, where you had to talk through your management, um, which, which seemed new. Uh, compared to what was what they'd had in the past. Uh, in regards to anatomy, uh, yes, from I think it was from your year, they'd gotten rid of the anatomy and uh, had two operative vivas. Our understanding was that one of these operative vivas would be predominantly anatomy-based. Uh, however, there wasn't actually many anatomy questions asked of us. Um, there was only maybe one or two of, of the six operative questions in each viva was anatomy focused. Um, and even, even saying that uh, wasn't the whole question. So I'm not sure, I, I, I suspect they'll increase the anatomy going forward. Um, but- um, the Are you were never asked, uh, describe the anatomy of popliteal fossa or carotid triangle, nothing like that really? No, nothing like that. Nothing kind of stock standard anatomy. Uh, we were asked, uh, for a drill procedure, the exposure of the ulnar artery. But even that, it wasn't asked directly. It was more so during my kind of discussion of the approach. The, there was a couple of leading questions on it. Um, yep. There were no kind of uh, point-blank anatomy questions. Could I, could I ask you, Kalpa, how you prepared for anatomy in the lead-up to the fellowship? Did you, did you read, apart from reading Valentine Wynn, did you read other texts? Uh, so I read Valentine's pretty much cover to cover and uh, I supplemented that with last. Um, in addition, we would just quiz at each other in our study group um, for kind of quite heavy anatomy. And even in 
doing uh, imaging vivas and things would always put some anatomy in there. Um, but text-wise, just those two. Can you just talk us through some of the way they asked you the operative questions? Because, like, you know, when uh, we started, it was, I think our first one was SMA stent. Tell us how you do an SMA stent. But it seems like the flavor of the questions was perhaps a little bit different, like the ligation of the common femoral vein. And there was a, uh, wasn't there a Paget Schroeder thrombolysis question as well? Uh, there was a Paget Schroeder thrombolysis, yes. Um, how would you do that? Uh, the important thing for that was uh, knowing the ultraplase protocol or urokinase or whatever your thrombolytic of choice was. Um, there was also a question about sizing uh, a, a venous stent and the landmarks used for that, uh, which I wouldn't say strictly an operative viva. However, that was in, in the operative. And that, was that for uh, May Turner or was that for the Padgett Schroeder? That was for May Turner. And another operative viva was uh, balloon occlusion in a rapid aneurysm. And there were, there were a few questions on management uh, of that. Uh, so it, was, they're all, it wasn't strictly operative. Can I just say, I'm loving the furtive look on your face, Kalpa, like you've completely forgotten the exam, like you should have. It's gone, <laughs> it's out of my mind. I don't want to ever talk about it ever again. Oh, mate, as soon as I finish, I just forget everything. Uh, it's, I'm actually struggling to remember the question. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> no, we, we won't push the point. Um, so one of the components of the Felsch exam is the written examination component, which is done a few weeks prior to the clinical exam, as you mentioned, Kalpa. Um, I guess I'd be interested to know a little bit about your preparation for the written exam and some of the techniques that your study group used to try and get, get yourself prepared for the exam itself. So for the written, I would say kind of nugget is speed is key. Um, I was fortunate enough to have uh, the keyboard that was used at, at uh, or the equivalent keyboard that was used at the exam ve um, venue uh, given to me by Sam um, and advised early on to increase my typing speed. Um, I, and, I, and I did that by just speed test every day before I started studying, uh, just speedtest.com uh, to improve my words per minute close to 90. Um, obviously, you know, knowledge is, is important, but once you have the knowledge, if you can't type fast enough, then, you know, no one knows what you know. Yeah. Um, so that was a, that was a really important thing. Um, and I'd encourage everyone to, to get a hold of that keyboard. I think, I think it's a, is it a Lenovo? Lenovo, yep. But I think it's fairly similar to any sort of chiclet style. Yeah, any kind of older, old office keyboard. keyboard. But, but certainly having the real thing is uh, an advantage. Yeah. So that, I think that's very important to have. Well, for me anyway. Um, in terms of studying for it, apart from that, I think the SVS and the European Society have good guidelines. Um, and I think we may not use guidelines in everyday practice very often. Uh, however, guidelines for an exam, a guideline-based answer in the exam, no one can question. Um, and I think it's, it's pretty rock solid um, to kind of base your answer off guidelines, especially for the written. Um, and it also allows you, it gives you a kind of a framework to just quickly jot down. Um, I was advised early on that, that note, uh, sorry, dot points are discouraged. We never actually got that in writing anywhere. 
but my answers are always in prose. I felt that was easier to um, to kind of get my point across. Um, the written, the structure, uh, I'm sure everyone knows, but there's the essay question, and then there was a, uh, I think it was five uh, short answer questions. Uh, one of one of which is a is a non-clinical um and we so important important point for the non-clinical there's a position papers on the racks website so go through all of them and have an answer ready for each of them um and all and for the the remaining written um, obviously there's a there's a past papers on the on the website um but we in our study group we essentially made our own exam we made multiple multiple of our own exams and just did them over the days and weeks before the exam. And we were fortunate enough that a few of our practice questions actually popped up on the exam, um, which obviously helped. Um, and we, you know, looking back, I'd probably have 20, 30 kind of practice exams that we just made up um, to kind of just, just run through timed. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think the speed is the most, is one of the most important things. Yeah, look, I think um, the written component is often the one that you guys, well, we all spent months and months preparing for in the terms of the context of reading the textbook, making sure we had summary notes, going back and rereading it again. The I, What I guess is the advice from the examiners is that um, there may be a perception that the written doesn't count as much as the vivas, and the reality is, that couldn't be further from the truth. The written is just as important as the clinical viva components. Um, and it, it appears that it's probably also the best predictor of success or failure with a 95% correlation with the ultimate result of where candidates end up going. Um, I, I think I can only echo the comments you made, Kalpa, in terms of the preparation strategy and, you know, Sam and I, definitely also took the, the advice of preparing with the, the keyboard, but also words per minute. And um, to put to give you an extra slant on it, Sam and I used to compete in terms of the number of words per minute we could achieve. Like I won, won. Yogi. Um, <laughs> but that's because I'm not a loser. Um, <laughs> and Sam is a huge nerd. But um, also, I never I, I don't know that I really achieved more than 90 words per minute myself. Um, Sam was somewhere in the thousands. That's that's time <laughs> to fame. <laughs> I, I realized I couldn't I couldn't think fa- I could type faster than ninety words per minute, but I couldn't think faster than ninety <laughs> words per minute. So it was irrelevant. Just on that keyboard, I remember Sam telling me last year about the keyboard, and I said, "Oh, that's a bit weird. Do I really need the keyboard?" And his response was, "Well, do you want to pass the exam or not?" <laughs> <laughs> You know, the, I practiced on a MacBook uh, keyboard and then the difference between that and the actual exam keyboard is different. Uh, and I think there's a lot, uh, and I guess for people who are out there listening to this in preparation to the exam, what I would say to you is that you're well within your right to contact the college prior to the exam to clarify the type of keyboard that you're going to use because whilst it's been the Lenovo, which is what's being used at the moment, that can also change with time. And I would suggest you get that clarified because um, it gives you just a little bit more insight in terms of how you're going to be on the day and nothing worse than feeling like you can't type fast enough. Yeah. And why it's important is there's such a huge time pressure as well. 
you don't want to be feeling uncomfortable trying to, you know, wrangle with a keyboard at the time. You want to really be in the zone. Um, Kalpa, this year was no different in some sense to the last 12 months, which is exams that had um, the influence of COVID. And in the lead up to the exam this year, there were some significant changes, especially on the Eastern Seaboard where uh, candidates were moved elsewhere. Um, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on how you dealt with some of those changes happening, particularly in the last minute. And um, how did you... How did you or your study group try and work around that to sort of get yourself in the right frame of mind? I think it was probably a week before the Vivers, Melbourne went into lockdown. Uh, so, sorry, two, so the Vivers were supposed to be at, at the Northern uh, and the area around there had a COVID outbreak probably two weeks before the exams, is that right, Sam? About that, yeah. Yeah, and then... Well, obviously, the exam couldn't be in, in, an, in an area of a COVID outbreak, so that got kind of put on the back burner somewhat. And then the whole state went into lockdown, kind of a week out from the exam. So I think there was there was two issues. One, were we going to have an exam at all? And two, if we were, where would we have it? So I think the question about having an exam at all, we were we didn't really get much information from the college uh, or from anyone, really. We got these kind of emails every couple of days saying they're in a meeting. We're working on it. Yeah, basically we're working on it. We're in a meeting. We'll let you know. We're in a meeting. We'll let you know. Um, there was one email that everyone got except for me, and then I had to call them, <laughs> and then they just sent the generic email back. Essentially, I think the the vibers were on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I think on the Tuesday we'd got an email saying the exam will go ahead in Melbourne, providing everyone has a COVID test and everyone's negative. But the official, official go ahead wasn't until I think it was the Wednesday night. I mean, I'd kind of, there was essentially it was out of our control, obviously. Um, and I kind of just, you know, just took the approach of continuing to prepare for it as if it was going to happen. And it sounded like they were trying everything to get it done for us. The secondary issue was obviously where was the exam going to be? Um, and I think Sam would have a lot more to say about that uh, as he was actually organising the exam. That sounded quite stressful. <laughs> that was a lot of fun, Kalpa. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Sam, Sam started his own COVID laboratory. That's right. <laughs> With the assistance of some yeah, clerical staff. I just got to say, just to provide some context to people who don't uh, haven't been... Uh, aware of all the inside uh, mechanics of how the exam was being run. Basically, we had to reorganize the exam at short notice at the Austin Hospital. And uh, obviously, that involved a lot of meetings with hospital uh, management. But um, eventually, we were able to get it across the line pending COVID swapping 20-plus patients. Which is, a hu- which is a huge undertaking, Sam. And I think... Um you know, um, no small task uh, by yourself and the rest of the examiners in the college to try and get an exam done in Melbourne. Um, and we both would empathise with trainees who were would have had um, would have struggled with the idea of having an exam cancelled at the last minute. So I think, yep. in in great respect, that uh, that's a huge undertaking on your behalf. You're welcome, Kalpa. <laughs> by the way, yeah. Kalpa. 
By the way, Calpa, that's what he said immediately after the exam got up. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome, Calpa. <laughs> I'm, I'm very grateful. I couldn't. I should have said, stuff this. Stuff this. This is too hard. You can just do it next year. Oh, it would have been the worst thing ever to just have to yeah. you know, delay it by yeah. who knows how long. But um, I think this is a question that keeps coming up is will the exam ever move to a virtual format? You know, how long is, you know, who knows how long all this will go on for? And I think the answer is no, because, um, you know, being on the other side of the ropes and um, listening to a lot of the things the examiners were saying and people from the college, for our specialty at least, they don't want people to change the way they prepare for the exam i.e. if you're going to say this is not a patient-based exam, you'll then stop examining patients. You'll then look at, you know, pictures of wounds, pictures of legs, pictures of aortas, and then you'll really take the patient out of it. And I think it's very clear that they don't want that to happen. So I think moving forward, you know, people who will be sitting, the next sitting and the sitting after that, if, uh, the pandemic is still a thing, which it probably will be. I think everyone needs to presume that the exam will happen in the traditional format as much as possible. Yeah. And again, I think um, credit to the examiners in terms of trying to maintain a certain standard in terms of what they believe is the appropriate means of uh, fellowship examination. I guess, though, they are incorporating various forms of um, virtual communication with um, examiners present via Zoom or, I guess, adjudicators present via Zoom. But um, I think from the, pr the presence of a clinical-based exam, uh, it seems like that that would be hard to change. Um, Kalpa, I guess to tie this section up, uh, in retrospect, looking back over you know your months of preparation, would there be is there anything that you would have done differently? Is there anything that you feel like you could have reminded yourself a few times that you were on the right track? And what what would you have done uh if you if you had to go through this process again what would you have done slightly differently if there is anything that you would have done differently um i think in terms of my study strategy i probably wouldn't really change much um i mean everyone has their own way of writing notes i just kind of write down wrote down things in a little exercise book and try to remember where i wrote them when i went to look back which probably isn't ideal but it seemed to work for me um, the one I suppose the only thing I would change is so before the written I took two weeks off I think I think that was useful but before the vivas I also took two weeks off and I feel like that was too long and I think only a week off is is probably ideal for the viva for me anyway because I felt that the two weeks then I hadn't seen a patient for two weeks and then going to the viva I was just a little bit uh off when i would have i felt it would have been yep. a bit better a bit more relaxed but maybe a bit slicker i may not have made a difference but but, um, but i think in hindsight i probably wouldn't have wouldn't have taken the two weeks the awesome. one uh comment i have to make about that kelper is the worst thing that could have happened is you know you get taps on the shoulder and be told you've come in contact with someone in the preceding two weeks to the exam who's positive and now you have to stay home for the next 14 days and then potentially take yourself no, out. Yeah, so, that is a good point, especially in, in COVID times. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's difficult. And I, I think, um, you know, you did the right thing by trying to keep yourself 
ready to go for the exam. I, I think, as Sam mentioned, that would be uh, that would have been a horrible outcome yeah, if, you, yeah. if you couldn't sit the exam after all that preparation. Yeah, and not just on yourself and on your family and everyone around you. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Uh, Kalpa, I guess just to slightly change the direction of our conversation here, um, you're now at the pinnacle of your knowledge and you've reached the heights of heights. You're, you're you know, the king of the mountain um, uh, before you reach the point that Sam and I are at, which is feeling like we're okay. Uh, but I guess I just wanted you to reflect on your years of training, you know, especially on the training program. All, all three of us have done five years. Um, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you about was what, how did you decide each year where you went and what do you what did did you take into account the balance between open and endovascular procedures as you went from place to place uh in terms of deciding it was probably more social factors than you know thinking where where is good from a particular skill set point of view um so i'm i'm from melbourne but i actually got onto the training program from perth uh spent a year in perth doing an unaccredited job there. And so I was fortunate enough to come back to Melbourne in set one. Um, then I put down my old kind of hospital for set two. Um, I knew we had to do minimum one year interstate. Uh, and for that year, I wanted to kind of do that early, um, early being set three or two or three. I ended up doing that in set three. And the reason why I went to Sydney uh, was basically because my brother was there. Uh, on a different surgical, as a different surgical trainee, um, which was easy for me and my wife. Um, and then came back to Melbourne. In terms of open versus endo, look, I think over five years, you know, my, all, of the, all of the jobs are pretty good. Um, and over five years, you should see a breadth of vascular surgery um, and you should be exposed to a number of different things, open and endo. Um, Traveling to Sydney was good for me uh, in that New South Wales does have a different flavor of things compared to Victoria. In saying what I said earlier, uh, just to kind of quantify that a bit, Melbourne probably is, has a slightly more open flavor than Sydney. And it was good to do that kind of more, I suppose, higher in endo in Sydney um, and then bring that back to Melbourne. Um, but, I mean, as a key factor for that, I suppose, Sydney has a lot more hybrid theatres in Melbourne. But as Melbourne progresses in, in having hybrid theatres, um, the endovascular kind of techniques are evolving and becoming more prevalent. Um, so I think going forward, I, I feel like in terms of deciding on jobs, probably think about, you know, you and your family and where you want to go more so, or for me anyway, more so than than the actual job itself um, because you know you'll end up well-rounded either way I, I would suspect the the biggest thing with moving around from training is how easy it is to become homesick and um to feel like you're a little bit socially isolated especially when you're away from people that form your social circle and like you said having people around you to support you during your times of training is incredibly important and we probably don't take that into account a lot of the time when we do move um saying that though and and um bear with me for this i have to give a shout out to you know the units across the ditch in new zealand because they do 
are, they are fantastic training opportunities, especially for Australian trainees to go across and perhaps do slightly more open operating compared to some, some of the potential uh, centres in Australia. But saying that, uh, I think Calpa, as you said, you can get a good mix of experience um, between centres within a state uh, as you move around. And Sam, I'm not sure if you also agree with that as to um, sort of being open to different centres in different parts of Australia or New Zealand to get the broadest experience you can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Sam, you, you moved up for a year um, where I had the privilege of working with you. Yeah, like I really enjoyed uh, working in Brisbane. It was, a, I, I sort of describe it as a fairly um, conventional vascular unit in terms of nothing Nothing is done there that's, um, uh, you know, a bit suspect. It's like <laughs> they do everything really quite well and, it's a you know, you get a really good grounding going there. And I think you probably got the same caliper when you went to Royal Melbourne set one. You just get a good grounding in the sort of fundamentals and then you can go to other other places and learn what's not so fundamental perhaps <laughs> yes yeah fair point um yeah no i had a pretty good grounding from the start and then yeah there are certain units that do things differently but i mean it's good to have those in your back pocket when you need it yeah absolutely and i think having them and having experienced them allows you to um put your best feet forward especially for the fellowship where you then have to reflect on um, a mentor or, or surgeons generally who you would think would reflect your practice broadly speaking and i'm sure this is this is said a lot but you obviously don't have to take on everything you kind of pick and choose what you like and yeah. incorporate that in your own practice yeah most definitely i might just ask you one uh, thing kelpa because um Probably the people who are going to be sitting the exam this time uh, next year are now sort of thinking about forming a study group. Um, would you just talk to what are the sort of the strategies to making or getting the most out of that and picking um, your uh, study buddies? Uh, sure. We There was three of us in our study group. Basically, we were the only three trainees sitting in Melbourne. Um, we formed it pretty early i think it was about may or june last year uh, and we i mean essentially we we did lots of on zoom to start off with and we were a bit we were a bit unsure how to start it off uh, the initial kind of uh, study group sessions on zoom we kind of uh didn't really have a good direction i would say um we did quite we did kind of practice questions but eventually we kind of formed a more of a plan um, and decided to do kind of uh, uh, sorry written questions um, and going forward and via the questions we because of COVID and the restrictions we didn't meet up very much at all at the start um, and only a few times really during uh, viva practice I think zoom zoom is is obviously quite useful these days um, and i think i would encourage everyone to get a proper subscription um so it's you know not time limited um and we had kind of regular weekly meetings there were you know quite a few weeks where everyone was on call and everyone was busy um but it's i think it's okay to miss a few weeks you know, providing consistent otherwise 
Yeah, I think consistency is hugely important. And Sam and I also, we weren't able to meet every week, but um, we try to achieve some degree of consistency. The other thing that I'd say um, is one of the strengths of Sam is the ability to bring together a group of people who were in multiple states who had different ways of studying and different approaches to study. And I think you gain a lot to perhaps a slightly larger study group, which is then refined down in the lead up to your exam. And I know that's perhaps not the way you're, you're particularly prepared, but um, credit where credit's due, I think Sam brought together a whole group of people in, in the lead up to our exam um, with that. Yeah, I dragged our study group along uh, kicking and screaming, Yogi. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the most important thing, Calpha, I'd say to a bigger study group initially is you get such a broad um, experience in terms of how other units deal with a problem and also um, just the different approaches to tech and techniques that are used. And it just allows you to broaden your horizon a little bit. But I, I guess when it gets close to the exam, you sort of want to knuckle down to, okay, I'm aware of this technique, but what are you going to do? What is your actual, what, what will you do next year when you're a first year consultant? What's your actual technique? So that would be the only comment I'd make in regards to the sort of large versus smaller study groups. Yeah, fair enough. Look, we, yeah, we just had the three. Um, I mean, I could definitely see the, the advantage in having a broader kind of answer base. Um, however, it, I mean, it was hard enough to get three people together. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, so with that, I guess, uh, Kalpa, we'll draw an end um, to our conversation. I was very grateful to have you along and especially to share your reflection on the fellowship exam, at least at the start of this year. And um, and very, very excited and very pleased that you were, you were successful through that. Um, both Sam and I would wish you well in the next couple of months in, in your preparation to consultant life. Um, it's uh, both both an exciting but challenging prospect that we would both um, we, we enjoy. But um, I think the Sam and I would both agree being a trainee is probably some of the most enjoyable parts of our life, especially going to um, Guzman and Goers drive through occasionally as set one trainees and those, <laughs> those sort of things you don't get back ever again. So enjoy, enjoy your colleagues, enjoy your work and in particular, enjoy the environment as you're especially coming to the end of your uh, couple of months of training here before you um, step up into, as Sam would say, into the jungle. Yeah, you get this eerie quietness where you're sort of not looked after by the college anymore. You get signed off from your hospital and you're kind of, you know, you're not tied to them. And um, the quietness is a bit eerie, I found. So um, anyway, you'll see that in a few months, Kelper, that uh, you'll be released from the program. The umbilical cord will be cut and uh, no one will care about you anymore and you'll be your own man. So <laughs> with those motivational words... Wise words. No, thanks, guys, for having me on. Um, you guys both have helped me as well during the study uh, early this year. Um, it's been a pleasure to be on your podcast. I hear it's in the top 100. <laughs> thanks, Kalpa. No, we, we, we appreciate it, Kalpa. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll, we'll get you back next time, as hopefully, as a meet the expert. You can bring something new. Do you do, podcast? do you do Peter Loop reconstructions? Because we'd love to hear about it. <laughs> what about radial artery loop I, reconstructions? He prefers to do, he just prefers to do pop 
DP bypasses. Yeah, it's only, DP bypasses it's only books on my list. Of DP. <laughs> oh, no, that's no, I really do appreciate it, Kalfa. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks, mate.